Habakkuk, chapter 1. The white page is in your Bible. It's one of the minor prophets. So you have Jonah, Nahum, Micah, Jonah, Micah. See, I don't know them either. I have to look for them. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And, uh, of course, it's only a couple pages long. So if you have a Schofield Bible, it's page 955. That'll help you. (laughs) Although I don't really recommend a Schofield Bible. He... uh, is very strong universal church um, gap theory just a lot of things he he he's for modern versions and all that kind of stuff anyway um, I have a Schofield I use a Schofield Bible because that's what I'm used to you know I've been buying the same Bible for years you know and I'm looking for something that's on this side of the page you know in this column so I hate to change although I hardly ever read his notes his notes are just the works of a man. But the text is still right, as long as you get the King James, because there are new King James uh, Schofield Bibles. Anyway, having said all that, Habakkuk chapter 1, and I'm going to read down through chapter 2 of, and verse 1. says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to hold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard... He wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards, and are more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from afar. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be scorned unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Art not thou not from everlasting? O Lord my God, mine Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. That is the Babylonians. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cast not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? Why are you looking on the Babylonians? That's what he's asking here. And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man as more righteous than he. And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. 
They take up all of them with the angle, and they catch them in their net, and they gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? I will stand upon my watch and set me upon my tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. I've titled this, and I don't know if it's a good title or not, but I've titled it Trusting in the Lord When Perplexed. Because Habakkuk is puzzled. He doesn't know what to think. And the reason he does not know what to think, we find in verses 5 through 13, um, and it's, you know, he's pronouncing there's going to be judgment on Judah. And I'll explain more of this later. But, but this is his perplexing thing. He's pronouncing that God's going to judge Judah. And the condition is terrible in the land. But so God's going to bring judgment. But he judges Judah with somebody more wicked than they are. Now, does that seem fair? Does it seem right? Well, well, we'll, we'll look at that. Let's, let's pray and then we'll look at this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your grace is sufficient for every need. And I pray, Father, that you help us to trust you even when we don't understand. So give us uh, understanding in thy truth and discernment uh, to know what is right and pleasing in thy sight and acceptable with thee and help us to accept your ways with us, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about this tonight, first of all, I want to notice the condition. Of course, he is a prophet, and just give you a little background. He's prophesying, they believed, uh, in the latter years of Josiah. And remember, King Josiah was probably one of the greatest kings that Israel had, other than David and Solomon, although Solomon compromised much in his latter years. But Josiah wrought, or brought about a revival, at least it seemed, Although, when he died, it immediately vanished. So, a lot of that revival was superficial. It was only because of Josiah. It wasn't really embedded in the hearts of the people. But there was a great reviving, a restoration of temple worship, the Passover, uh, and even some out of Israel came and joined with that. And he he, he uh, destroyed the high places. He destroyed everything that was displeasing to God. However, God had already determined that he was going to judge Judah because of the wickedness of Josiah's father, Manasseh. Manasseh had turned the temple into a, um, what do I want to say, a prostitution house. You know, it was just some of the most wicked times in, in the nation of Israel, and, and God had already promised judgment. Uh, but anyway, so this is the conditions, and, and he, he, he describes them for us as uh, violence, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? So he's crying out, Lord, how long are you going to put up with this violence? How long are you not going to do something about it? And that's a question people ask. You know, why does God allow this? Well, you've got to balance God's sovereignty with free will of man. God's not a tyrant. Uh, he will not force his will upon men. And, and so uh, 
there was this violence. You know, violence is defined as physical wrong, injury, or oppression. And if you read in Jeremiah about the conditions during this time period, Jeremiah writes some of the same time uh, during the days of Josiah, and then then Jehoiakim, who came on the scene after immediately after Josiah, who departed from the Lord and went back to the pagan worship and all the high places and all that, and and so on and so forth. And and there was there was you know. Uh, the elite in Israel bringing the poor of the land into subjection, slavery, which they were commanded not to do. Um, and, and so this was, the, this was the, you know, there was, there's this injury and oppression, this violence in the land. Uh, the spoiling, he talks about spoiling, verse, verse uh, uh, where is it here? Um, Yeah, verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to hold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that that raise up strife and contention. So spoiling has to do with devastation or ruin. You know, the temple had been ruined by uh, Jehoiakim and, and the princes, and the people were taken advantage of at the temple. Uh, so any of those who, and, and you know, he talks about the spoiling, violence, and the strife. So there would have been strife. You know, there were still a few, there was always a few or a remnant that wants to do what's right, wants to please the Lord. So they're trying to do what's right, bring their sacrifice to the temple. And, but the, the rulers have, have defiled it. It's sort of like, you remember the days of uh, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas uh, took, took by force portions of the sacrifices that were supposed to be offered to sacrifices and they made themselves fat off of the people and their offerings. So they were taking things that did not belong to them. You know, some of that offering that, that was brought to the temple was for the priests, but they were taking things that did not belong to them and taking them by force. They also, as the Bible says, they also laid with the women that were at the doors of the tabernacle. Therefore, the people abhorred the sacrifice of the Lord. Then they, they, there was no joy in it. They, they had ruined it. They had brought it to, to ruin or devastation. And of course, you know, that always brings strife and contention. When law is not followed, there's not equity. There's not equality. And he says the law is slacked, verse 4. Therefore the law is slacked. That word slack means it grew numb ineffective it's not enforced you know there's not that's not practice what good's a law if if you don't enforce it you know we, we again we we see this you know when we can make application to hear our country but we can make application in churches too in fact I, I believe that's where the root of the problem is we, so many churches don't follow the law of God you know things they don't like that we just don't, you know, well, we, you know, we preach all positive things. We major on the positive things. Well, there are a lot of negatives in the Bible. And they're there for our warning, for our instruction. And so they don't take heed to the law of God. You know, is the word of God actually practiced? You know, this is the thing we need to ask ourselves. Is the word of God actually practiced in our church? Are we faithful in our stewardship? You know, we're, we're to be stewards of God's word. We're, 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 we're not... A, uh, uh, we're not legislators. We don't rewrite or decide what we want and what we don't want. 
you know, we are just to carry out, to be executors of what God has given us in His Word. So, so are we faithful stewardship of, in our stewardship of that? Uh, and, you know, do we give heed to all the counts of God? These are things we need to ask ourselves. You know, the, the thing that we need to ask ourselves is, is this in line with what the Scriptures teach? Uh, you know, it's slack. The, the judgment is not enforced. It says, he goes on and says, judgment doth never go forth, verse 4. So it's not enforced. It's not sentence. You know, there's a law. There's a law that says this and this, but it's never enforced. You know, what good is it if you make a law, you know, and you, if, if a policeman arrests somebody and then a judge won't enforce it? I mean, what good is the law? What good is the Word of God if we can listen to it but never make application to life? What good is it? You know, we can hear it, you know, but it's like going one ear out the other. You know, we have, to, we have to listen. That's what Jesus said over and over again. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. So, so you know, it's not enforced. And this is the kind of conditions that, that were prevalent. You know, this has been after Josiah's death, I do believe. And so it's not enforced. Uh, you know, uh, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 8, 11 through 13 says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So if a sentence is not executed, it's not put into force, you know, the sons of men, their hearts are going to be set to do evil. But it goes on and says, Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, let surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. You know, Proverbs 29, <coughs> excuse me, 29, 18 says, <coughs> excuse me, where there is no vision. Now, when we talk about a vision, we're not talking about some dream or added revelation, something mystical. The word vision means a divine oracle or a command of God. Where there's no command. Was no instructions from God. That's the idea. When it says no vision, that's what it means. The people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. See, if you have a law whereby all are expected to follow, you know, one of the things that eliminates is strife and contention. Because the law is no respecter of persons. And so this was the condition in the nation of Israel or a nation of Judah during this time. And, and, it, and he, he concludes by saying this, Therefore doth wrong, wrong judgment proceedeth. So it's constantly wrong judgments being made. And this is a condition that is revealed to him. And, and it's revealed to him and he asks this question in verse 3, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance. Why do, you know, why dost thou show me? Uh, why does God allow us to see iniquity? Well, why does God allow us to see iniquity? We might ask ourselves a couple questions. 
Why does God allow us to see iniquity in ourselves? Do you ever see yourself sin in your own self? Well, you know, sometimes God allows us to see our own sin to keep us humble. Um, to make us submissive in times of trouble and to make us value you know, salvation more and more. For example, look at Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah would prophesy a little earlier than Habakkuk. He actually prophesied during the days of Josiah's father, which would have been Manasseh, so he was a predecessor, and it's believed that Manasseh put Isaiah to death. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we see why, why uh, God allowed him. And, and, and if you read, and I'm not going to for sake of time read the first five chapters, but if you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is just preaching about the wickedness of the nation of Israel and their sin. You know, about their children rule over them and women rule over them and, and you know, and, 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 and all the, the sin of, their, of the nation and how wicked they are. And then, in chapter 6, in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up in his train field the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, now he doesn't notice it, he doesn't say, then said I, the Lord to Israel, or then said the Lord to Judah. He said, then said I, woe is me. It's not Judah anymore. It's woe is me. For I am undone. Come, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of my people of unclean lips. You know, Judah is unclean. They are a wicked people. And I'm dwelling there, but so am I, is what he's saying. You know, he's starting, he's realizing that though he's prophesying to these people who are wicked and unclean and immoral, yet he is a sinner such as they are. He sees himself. See, now he's not comparing himself to the to them. He's comparing himself to God. And that brings a different perspective. That brings a humbling perspective. When we see ourselves for who we really are. It also makes us appreciate what we have in Christ. Notice verses 6 through 8. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with his tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, thy sin is purged. Then, and I also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So, so it makes us submissive to the Lord, but it also makes us value what we have in Christ. You know, when we value something, we want to, it's something we want to, when we see it as something of value, it's something we want others to know about. Look also, and go to the New Testament. New Testament chapter, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. 
Luke chapter 5, verse 1 says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake Genesaret, saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were going out of them or washing their nets. He entered in one of the ships, which was Simon's, that would be Peter, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. When he had done this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, see, Simon, or Peter here, is brought face to face with who the Lord is the power of God, and he realizes who he is. He realizes that, see, it humbled him. And he, and, he, and he says, you know, Lord, I'm not worthy. You need to depart from me. I'm not worthy. That's really what he's saying. I'm not worthy. And, but he also submits to him, it says in verse 9, for he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes that they had taken so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Jesus said unto them, Simon, fear not. It, it, though you are unworthy, don't be afraid. For from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. So, so they were humbled. They submitted to, their, to him in their time of their need. And then they realized the value of what they experienced. So much so that they followed him. They wanted to become a part of what he was doing. See, this is the condition in the nation of Israel. And, and of course, these are the, this, is why, this is why God is revealing this to uh, Habakkuk. And this is why God allows us to see iniquity in ourselves. He also allows us to see iniquity in, our, in others so that, to show us what we what we might have been. Do you, you ever look at somebody and say, there goes me, but by the grace of God. I was headed that way. That's where I was headed. You see, it, it helps us, it, it can help us to see sin in others. Not that we want to see sin in others, but, but, but seeing sin or the, 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 the depravity or the Christ of sin and others uh, reveals to us the wickedness of sin and, and warn us not to indulge in it. You know, Jude, verse 33 says, uh, uh, we're to, yeah, I'm trying, trying to think how it goes. Anyway, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. So, it's like, you know, we, we are expected to go out into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And, and we're going to run into those who are, who, whose garments, their lives have been marred by sin. That we may hate, that we should hate. But it ought to cause us not only to, to realize what we might have been without the grace of God, but also to endeavor to, to, 
to deliver those who are enslaved uh, in the clutches. You know, at the, you, you might say when it says uh, pulling them out of the fire, the picture that I see here is they're on the precipice ready to fall into hell. And it's like we're snatching them away from that. Uh, you know, Asaph talked about that in Psalm 73 when he said he desired, the, he was envious at the wicked. He was envious until he went to the sanctuary, sanctuary, then he understood their end. And then he says, oh, how foolish was I. How foolish was I. It makes us admire the grace of God when he saves sinners. You know, think of the, think of the you know, you can think about, you know, the, the grace of God that's extend, extended to sinners, uh, you know, to the, uh, as to our way of thinking, the worst of sinners. And, and Paul spoke of this in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, when he kind of gave his testimony there, and he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 17, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You don't get any worse than I was. How be it? For this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern which to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life, to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He said he 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 God is showing a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him. Do you ever have somebody say, I'm too bad to be saved? I've had that said to me a couple times. When I was in Allensville years ago, just starting out in the ministry, we had a man just coming to our church, started coming to our church. He was a big guy in many ways. And he had some serious problems. And uh, anyway, um, he said to me, we had had an evangelist come in, and he preached from Romans chapter 1 about God giving up homosexuals and, you know, sodomites and that sort of thing. And And he mentioned that statement three or four times in his message, God gave them up. And he, and he almost gave the impression, at least I felt he did, that he gave the impression that somebody who had committed homosexual or lesbian acts couldn't be saved. They were given up by God. Of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 contradicts that. But anyway, after the service, this man came to me and he had tears. And he said, Pastor, there's no hope for me. I said, what do you mean? He said, he just said, God gave them up. He said, I used to do that. And so I took him to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, talks about the effeminate, the abusers themselves, that's talking about homosexuals. But he says, such were some of you. 
But now you are sanctified. Now you are justified by our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, and I said, and I said to him, there's no such thing as too great a sinner to get saved. There's only such a thing as one who will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, God allows us to see these things, see, see these kinds of things to help us, that shows to us or demonstrates to us the, the grace of God that he will save sinners, by the way, such as we are. Spurgeon also said this, to set us more earnestly to work that God can use us to save others and extend God's kingdom. Our brethren, we need to know more of the evil of men to make us more earnest in seeking their salvation. For if there be anything in which the church is lacking more than any other matter, it is a matter of earnestness. Unquote. And of course, the Bible speaks of you know, Paul spoke of that earnestness that he had in Romans chapter 9, where he said, I wish I were cursed from Christ for my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, that I have great sorrow in my heart, continual sorrow in my heart. You see, he realized the earnestness of their need. Because they were on that precipice. They were ripe for destruction, and if they didn't repent... It was eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, again, encouraged them with the earnestness, and this is fitting for our day and time. I believe we're living in the last days. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1 says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, for when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman and a child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of the light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. We just think, think seriously about the days we're living in. I believe we're living in the, in the last days. Do you, want, do you want needs to happen yet before the Lord comes for us in the rapture? Nothing. Do you know what they're talking about all around the world, the rulers of the world? They're talking about peace and safety. While we got wars and rumors of wars going on and talks of famines and all this kind of stuff, which is very possible. But you know, all that stuff's going to take place during the tribulation period. Now, I'm not saying we might not have some difficult times. It's possible we can. But my God has promised to supply all my needs. So I'm not so concerned about what is going to happen. What we do need to be concerned about is where are my friends? Where are the people that I know? Where are they going? Where are they going to spend eternity? Because once the day of the Lord comes, it may be too late. You know, we can, we can be, and, and you know, again, 
God revealed this to Habakkuk to help him to be able to help his people, to warn his people. You know, we can be, we can be too protective and live our lives in a bubble. You know, I, I, I think this, you know, I think the Christian school movement was a great, um, I don't want to say, uh, it, it promoted this thing that we, we live in a bubble that our children never see what life is really like out there in the world. You can do that in homeschooling too. You can keep your children at home and protect them from never seeing the wickedness that goes on in the world and, and, so, and never see the consequences and misery that sin brings or we can be so overreactive or an extreme isolation from the world because we're afraid that they might see something. Do you realize what the children of Israel were going to see when they went into the land? But you know what? God gave them instructions how to deal with it. How are we going to witness to those people out there in the world who are living in sin if we don't go out where they are? We have to. You know, it, it, it's kind of incumbent that we understand the consequences and the misery that they're in and, and learn how to, to, to uh, uh, relate to them in a way. We don't have to, we don't have to you know, participate in their sin, but we, we, we're not to isolate ourselves and, and, so, and to train our children know how to deal with it when temptation comes because the temptation is going to come. See, we are here for the purpose of ministering to these people. You know, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. He ate with them. Now, he never participated in their sin, but he ate with them. He communed with them. And he ministered to them. So this is, this is why, that, you know, God is showing this. You know, he asked the question, Lord, why dost thou show me iniquity? And cause me to behold. Why do you cause me to see all this grievance? But the, really the rest of the passage explains why. So you can explain to this nation why they're being judged. What the consequences of their sin is. And how to be spared from it. Then secondly, the correction of God's people. So that's the condition. The correction of God's people in verses 5 through 12. And... I want to draw your attention to two verses in particular, verse 5 and verse 12, where it says, Behold ye among the heathen in regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And then verse 12 says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Notice, he says, I've established them. He's talking about the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. That's Chaldeans is a Babylonian, another name for the Babylonians, who he calls a bitter and hasty nation. And, you know, if you think about the description of them, they were merciless. I mean, they spared nothing. They were harsh, cruel. And yet... He says, I have established them for correction, not for annihilation, 
not for destruction, for correction, for correction. You know, God made a promise to the fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that of their seed, they would raise up, he would raise up a deliverer. It's an everlasting covenant, shall not be changed, cannot be changed, cannot be altered. And of course, that seed would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, this is really a prophecy concerning that. You know, he says, he says, thou art an everlasting, art thou not everlasting? He's phrasing it in a question, O oh Lord my God, my Holy One. And because of he, God is everlasting, therefore we, the children of Israel, will not die. I mean, think of all the nations that have tried to wipe out the children of Israel. Starting with Pharaoh. And then, you know, I don't, I, of course, you had the, the kings of the north and the kings, Assyrian kings and the Egyptian kings that would fight back and forth during the reign of, of uh, after the reign of, um, uh, Neb, not Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great. You know, the nation, the, the, his kingdom was divided up into four generals and, and they, they, they would fight back and forth and right in the middle is the land of Israel and they would just, they would, they would, uh, a fight against God's people, and you know there was massive destruction. There was a there was a abomination of desolation. It's believed that Antioch Epiphanes offered a sow on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, and it was during that time you've heard of the Maccabees. The Maccabees revolt came about, and Judas Maccabee led a revolt. He was an old priest. He refused to to honor Antioch Epiphanes and and to worship him, and he he started a revolt, and they threw off for a time, but it came with Great destruction. I mean, they were, you know, it was terrible, terrible time. Of course, you come into modern times and you have Hitler, you have Stalin, who the reality is many believe he killed more Jews than Hitler ever did. And now you have Iran and you know all the neighboring countries around there that have threatened and threatened and threatened to wipe Israel off the map they hate them all these nations in fact it's um, I think it's in Ezekiel 38 somewhere in there 37 I think it is no it's 35 it says thou hast a perpetual hatred in other words there's a there's an unending hatred against Israel by these people. And yet they're still here. I mean, they're a nation to be reckoned with. They're a nation among nations. Though they're small, they're very powerful. Though they're small, they're very prosperous. They've turned that wasteland into a, into a, a fruitful field. You know, I was looking this up the other day. Do you know how many... You know how many uh, wineries there are in Israel? 300. That's just the commercial ones. There's a lot more that are, you know, family operator or whatever or, or private. But, but you know, it's, it's a prosperous. They're still without God. They're still not worshiping the true God. But he says, thou shalt not die. Why? Because God is everlasting and God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which cannot be annulled. This is also prophetic. Look at 
Acts chapter 2, there's, there's a reference here to Christ in this prophecy of Habakkuk. Acts chapter 13. I think I said Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 13, verse 37. <clears throat> But he whom God raised again, so no corruption. Acts 13, 37. 38 says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, that lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. And here's the, here's the wording. For I work a work in your days, a work which... Ye shall no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. See, redemption is promised. Though they are headed for correction, redemption is promised. There's a promise here in this correction of being brought back into fellowship with God. And of course, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Israel one day will be brought back in the land. You know, Jeremiah says this, two places. Jeremiah 30, verse 11 says, For I am with thee, saith the Lord. And Jeremiah's whole prophecy is about the judgment that God is going to bring upon you through the Babylonians. That's going to happen. You need to surrender to it. But this is what he also says. I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. You know, God has to punish sin. He's holy. He's righteous. He's going to punish sin. So he's not going to let them go unpunished. But he's not going to make an end of them. Again, verse 40, chapter 46, verse 28 of Jeremiah says, this, Fear not, not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee. For I will make a full end of all the nations, whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. You know, the application to us today is, God may correct us as His children. In fact, He will. If you're a child of God, God's going to correct you. Just as a father chastens his son. But He will never destroy you, nor disown you. Because we have everlasting life from an everlasting God whose word cannot be altered. In fact, you think about this correction. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and we see, you know, we see some correction here. And sometimes this correction can be severe. 1 Corinthians 11, God, God corrected some at Corinth. And 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 says this, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Talking about the, the, the Lord's Supper here and taking it unworthily with sin in your life, known sin. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily Eateth and drinketh damnation, or judgment of God, to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not considering what was done for him. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The word sleep means they died. 
So they had died early. This is what the Bible refers to as the sin unto death, committed by a saved person who persists in sin without repentance. And then he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So God doesn't want us to live like the world. He doesn't want us to identify with the world. He doesn't want us to be condemned with the world. So he chastens us. Here's what he wants us to do. We have a choice when we sin. We can judge ourselves or have God judge us. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess there means we need to agree with. We need to say the same thing about our sin that God does. And if we confess, if we say the same thing about our sin that God does, we confess it to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's judging yourself so that you'll not be condemned with the world. You know, obviously there were some here who would not confess their sin. So, you know, that's the uh, correction. Then the third thing. The concern for God's people, and this is in verse 13 through chapter 2 and verse 1. And I'll just read verse 13 for sake of time. But he, and here's the puzzling part. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. Canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? See, see Habakkuk's a little puzzled here. He said, he's saying, look, okay, God, I understand you're going to correct us, but do you realize that Babylon is more wicked than we are? And you're a God that cannot even look on evil. You won't behold it. And yet, you're going to use Babylon to correct us? The answer is, yes, he is. You notice, Babylon is a nation all about themselves. They boast in their power. Verse 15 says, They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in a drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. They're rejoicing in their own, their own devices. Uh, they worship their sovereignty, their control. Verse 16 says, Therefore, they sacrifice under the net, burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. And then verse uh, 17 talks about their brutality and their, their, their merciless. Um, Say they therefore empty their net, shall they therefore empty their net, and not spare continually to slay the nations. And they impute all this, what they're doing, to their own God, not to the God of heaven. Verse 11 says, Then shall his mind change, he shall pass over and offend, imputing this power unto his God. And so, you know, Habakkuk's asking this question, you know, Lord, how can, how can you use an ungodly nation that's more wicked in our eyes than we are? There's a couple of things that come to mind here. Number one, too much is given, much is accountable. The children of Israel had the words of God. 
They had the priests of God. Babylon did not. Babylon did not. They didn't say have Babylon didn't have the same privileges and opportunities as Israel had. Now, did they have access to it? Yes. You remember Babylon sent an embassage to Hezekiah, king of Judah. And Hezekiah showed him all the glories of his kingdom. But you know, one of the things it doesn't say in there, it doesn't say anywhere that Hezekiah told them about his God. And Isaiah says several times to the nation of Israel, ye are my witnesses. God didn't choose Israel just to bless Israel and make them a mighty nation. He chose them to bless them to be witnesses to the nations around them. And much like we today, many times we fail to be a witness because of our own sin and disobedience to God. And so the answer is, yes, God does use the heathen. But you know what? If you read the rest of the story, as they used to say in Paul Harvey, some of you, most of you probably never heard of Paul Harvey. But anyway, that was back in my, my, my time, you know. But the rest of the story, God, through, through Habakkuk, is saying, is going to say, look, I'm going to judge Babylon too. Their day's coming. But right now, they are an instrument in my hand to correct you. You know, and we find this in other places of Scripture, and, and I don't have time to turn there, uh, but in 1 Kings 11, you know, the Bible tells us that Solomon loved many strange wives, and then God brought adversaries. One of them was Hadad, an Edomite. You know, he became his enemy. He caused all sorts of problems in Solomon's kingdom. And, and then there was another guy, I'm trying to remember, can't remember his name, but he was, he was a Syrian, so these were, these were the enemies. These were not God's children that stirred up trouble. These were, these were Gentile people that caused trouble, and the Lord sent them. Why? To try and correct Solomon. And, of course, Jeroboam also. And the prophet Ahijah told Jeroboam what to do, and Jeroboam became then the king over the, the nor- ten northern tribes after Solomon's kingdom, uh, after Solomon's death. Uh, but here's an, another interesting thing. Go to 2 Corinthians. This, this, is a, this is an interesting thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, you know, does God use heathen to correct his own? Again, the answer is yes. God does chasten his own. And he, he, he will use any means. He used Pharaoh to chasten the children of Israel, to stir them up, to get them out of the land. Um, anyway, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6. Although I would desire to glory. And let me stop right there and say something. What's Paul say? Though I would desire to glory. I'd like to go on telling you all about all the things that I have accomplished by the grace of God. Now, would that be really a good thing? What would that lead to very quickly? Pride. Boasting. Yeah. So I would desire, he said, I shall not be a fool, for I will, not, I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which see, seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure. 
You know, when I read this, I think of Moses, whom God buried, and no man knows the sepulcher of Moses to this day. You know why I believe that? You know why I believe God did that? Because they'd have made a shrine out of Moses' gravesite. Just like they've made a shrine out of, what's, what's the Mongol, um, Angus Kong, you know. That's a shrine. You can't even get near it. They're not even sure where it is, you know. Um, why it's a shrine? Because he's some this great conqueror. Well, that's what they would have. They would do this of Paul. However, God sent or allowed. And notice what he allows. Verse 7 again. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of who? Satan. So God allowed Satan to afflict Paul's body to keep him dependent on the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say this. You know, there's a couple hints. This is Pastor Byler's opinion. Okay, You don't have to agree with me. It really doesn't matter. But you, when we get to heaven, you'll find out I was right. No, just kidding. But, but you know, he, 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 he speaks to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2 that you would have taken out your eyes, plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And then he talks about how large a letter. And it's believed that he had some kind of eye disease, likely from being smitten by the glory of God so bright that it burned his eyes. Remember, there were scales came off his eyes when, when, when Ananias laid his hands on him. There were scales. So, so it was like a... He was burned. It you know, reminds me of a sunburn, how your skin gets scaly or blisters. Well, you know, so it was believed he had this. And, and they, they say that it makes a person look really, really ugly. So God allowed this affliction so people wouldn't adore or worship or lift up Paul further than he should have been. And it's a messenger of Satan to keep him correct. Think about it. A messenger of Satan to keep him correct. A thorn in the flesh. Uh, something that was, was, was difficult for him that seemed to hinder him you know, you would think it would hinder him in his ministry, but, you know, it was after he got that that he wrote most of the epistles that help us, that have lived, helped Christians through the centuries, given us instruction concerning things dealing with the church. You see, the psalmist said in Psalm 7610, Short of the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. God is sovereign. You know, these rulers in the world that think they can do whatever they want, they can't do whatever they want. They can only do what God allows. Because God will restrain their power. But it's for his purposes. Uh, he says, Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. We, we ought to fear him. You know, the Lord used Pharaoh, the enemy of God, to bring his will to pass. The Lord used the deceit and the evil of Judas to fulfill his word, though he did not make Judas do it. 
So we've got to understand, God doesn't make us do it. Evil. So God will allow or use, he, he may allow in your life, He may allow or use the world to try you. Correct you. Make you aware of your own sinfulness. Or I should say, we aware of our own sinfulness. You know, to bring us to realize our sin and our need of Him. You know, sometimes the way seems hard, but the Lord knows what is needed and what is good for us. And we, like Habakkuk, need to accept it. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, with I'm finished, I will stand upon my watch and set my, me upon my tower. And we'll watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He's admitting, I don't understand this. God, you've got to correct me in this. Because he don't understand. He's, he's questioning why, God, you're allowing us. But he's, what he's looking for is God's going to give him understanding in this. He's going to re- correct his thinking. Because his thinking right now is, God, how can you do this? Sometimes we say, God, how can you allow this? The thing is, we need to trust him no matter what we think. Because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But we can rest on one thing. God said... He is good, and no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And so, if God allows hardships, trials, the Lord, the world to try us, he's allowing it for a purpose in our life. Maybe to correct us from the error of our way. May the Lord help us. Let's